The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Really nice to be with everyone for our last or fourth class on sensuality, craving, dispassion, and contentment. And uh, it's really, for me, a real, just a rich part of my own personal practice. Hopefully that's true for you too. And uh, if nothing else in these four weeks, hopefully we've turned that corner, we've teased out that ancient shadow, not just in Buddhism, but in, I think generally in spiritual, a lot of spiritual traditions, this fear of sensuality or this demonization of spirituality. But sensuality, sense experience, the dance of pleasure and pain, and neutrality for that matter, that's just how it is. I mean, that's just what it means when we have a body, a life. There are going to be these endless flow of experiences that are pleasant, neutral, painful, all over the map. And as I tried to suggest in the guided meditation, a lot of it has to do with how the mind is choosing to relate to the central experience that's here and now. And putting more emphasis, it's not that we give up navigating our life and making choices toward our preferences and away from things that scare us or turn us off or whatever. But in terms of uh, the deeper sense of happiness that's available, it's much more about how the mind is choosing to relate. It's really this relational aspect that is the, you know, where the depth of spiritual learning revolves. Like that's where we have some, you know, you, you could say that's where we have free will in a way. What shows up, the weather that shows up, even our health that shows up for us. There's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of that we're not in charge of, can't control. But nobody can take away from us in a moment how we're going to relate to what's showing up. In a sense, it's always, always, always in play. I can relate with grasping, trying to hold on to the good, even though it's slipping through my fingers because things keep changing. I could be pushing away the difficult, even though if it's coming into my experience in the moment, there may not be anything I can do to keep it out. So I could be struggling with the flow of experience, or I could be putting more and more emphasis on relating with wisdom, relating with kindness, relating with this pleasure, this freedom of letting go, the letting go of attachment, the letting go of clinging. And I, when I think about this, you know, I, I really like the Buddhist realms of existence. <coughs> You know, in Buddhist culture, 
it's kind of a folk religious idea. You know, there are these different realms of existence and there may be actual, you know, hell realms and hungry ghost realms. I'll go, I'll go through them. Deva, angelic realms, godly realms, whatever. But it's a really powerful metaphor or simile for how we relate to sensuality. Like when we're in a hell realm, it means that uh, we're willing to do anything to make the conditions more pleasant. I'll sell my soul, I'll sell your soul, I'll kill somebody, I'll do anything. I am so desperate to get away from the pain. That's a hell realm. We feel trapped, so trapped, that we'll do whatever we can do to make it go away. Including, like one of the images that's used in one of the Buddha's suttas, discourses, is how a leper, at the time of the Buddha, they'd have those open wounds, I guess, that comes with leprosy, and they'd put like uh, the wound next to a hot coal, like a red hot coal. I guess it would cauterize it in a way, but obviously it would be so painful, but the itching would temporarily go away, right? So this is like a hell realm where we'll do things that temporarily interrupts the pain, but ultimately makes everything worse. Hell realms. Now sometimes we're the one in the hell realm around sensuality, and it's really good to know that we're capable of that, so, and to know what those experiences are. Oh yeah, it's sort of, without wisdom, we're all vulnerable to being in hell realms. You know, that sense of betrayal, like especially in love life, <clears throat> where we can be so desperate if our lover is leaving us or whatever. You know, that will do things that are very self-destructive. Anybody not do that <laughs> at some point in your life? We've all done it in little or bigger ways. And then the next realm is the hungry ghost realm. And they're depicted as beings with a very tiny mouth, the size of a pinhole, but big bellies. So they have a huge appetite, but they can never quench their appetite. And so these beings, you know, they're always hungry, never gratified. And they, they're, we're so hungry when we're in that hungry ghost realm, that situation, that there's no space in my mind to take the bigger view. What's going on here? Is there another way? Which is desperately, like this is a, the, the obvious example of this is addiction whatever the addiction is, to pornography or to drugs or alcohol or any number of things, of course, that we can get addicted to in little and big ways. And it's like the mind is incapable when we're really in that realm of a hungry ghost to take the bigger picture and to realize that trying desperately to get the next fix in the big picture isn't the appropriate response. It doesn't lead anywhere that ultimately will be satisfying or useful or healthy. Or It's a, like we're in a downward spiral, but we just want the next fix. 
just buy a little bit more time. So it's good to notice, oh yeah, we're susceptible to hell realms, we're susceptible to the hungry ghost realm. The next realm is an, the animal realm, which we can clearly be in. And the animal realm is, is seen in this sort of Buddhist cosmology in terms of the ignorance and uh, the image that comes to mind, I, some of you heard me mention this, but when we were kids, I grew up in Minneapolis and the family, our family took a trip when I was a little kid to uh, Paul Bunyan land. I'm sure some of you have been there back in the day. So this was like mid sixties and I was probably seven or something like that. And uh, I remember they had a little, you know, the, days before the electronic arcades, but they had animals, I think it was chickens, and uh, you'd put your quarter or your nickel, and uh, the music would play, and the chicken was trained, it would do some kind of activity, some dance or something, and then after the music played for 30 seconds and the chicken did its activity, a little bit of corn would come down, and the chicken would get its reward you know, until the next kid put the dime or nickel in. And then, and that's a really useful, like I think that's in the Buddhist cosmology what they want to represent by the animal. Like it's, we're governed by instinct, which is us sometimes, right? And we, we just will do, you know, we'll keep doing the same thing. We're sort of stuck in the rep, repetition of like what's worked before, I'll do it again. I go to work, punch my card, go home. The mind doesn't want to rock the boat. I'll take my, I don't care if I'm oppressed. I don't care if it isn't fair. I just don't want to rock the boat. Just want to survive. Get the next bit of corn. Just want to get to bed tonight. Just want to get to Friday. Just get... Just give me my one week vacation. And then the human realm gets more complicated because we're still animals, still want to survive, still very dependent on our routines. Don't want to rock the boat, don't mess with my routine. You know, I have toast with jam in the morning, I have a bologna sandwich, at, you know, it's sort of like these things that just sort of make us feel safe. But with the human realm, we, we have this capacity for a moral conscience where we also care about how I'm relating and how other people are doing, and it touches our heart. We can when we're in the human realm. That's, in, in a Buddhist cosmological sense, that's the definition that we're not in one of the lower realms, but we've actually fulfilled, you know, our place as humans, is that we have this moral sensitivity. We care. We care. And it hurts us whenever we're choosing to be aware, when we mistreat, when we take advantage, when we oppress, when we don't care about the well-being of others. But it allows for this more profound happiness, which is the happiness of moral integrity. 
It's like even if we're sick with cancer or in poverty, we have that, we can have that good feeling of, well, I, I've lived according to my conscience and I haven't taken advantage of, taken advantage of others and I feel good about that. Even though my particular situation isn't very, you know, it's not great, but I, I have the sleep of the just, we say, right? Or in Buddhism, we say the bliss of blamelessness. And by the way, this is what we're going to study in the summer course, eight weeks beginning June 27th, eight Mondays. We're going to study sila, which is quite rich area. So that includes wise action, wise speech, wise livelihood, involves the precepts around non-harming, and just that general happiness that can arise from having this kind of integrity around our actions in the world, how we relate, and this more gross level of relate with each other, and the real happiness that can arise in that. And that's really the depiction of the human realm. It's like we have this possibility for more, like not just a, happiness of an animal that has found a way to survive, get enough shelter, get enough food, don't mess with the routine, or this, you know, even worse off of the hungry ghosts and the people, the creatures in hell realms. But we have this, as a human, we have this possibility of a, you could say, the first level of spiritual happiness, which is living with moral integrity and feeling that it's not the right word, but that cleanness of, like, I've been a good human being. I haven't taken advantage. I've cared about others. I've tried to live a good life. And that's not nothing. That's something. And we sense that in people sometimes, too. Like, if, you, if you're around a lot of people, if you've been... It's strange to say it this way, but had the good fortune to be around a lot of people who, in the dying process, one of the things that really helps people in the dying process is as they reflect on their life, the sort of general sense is, I've been a good human being. You know, I've done, I've done a good job being a mom or a father or a friend or a lover or a citizen. I feel good. Not perfect, wasn't perfect, but I feel good about the choices that were made and how I cared for others and cared for the planet even. That can be a powerful protection during difficult times. And it's sort of something in our early Buddhist tradition that we're told to call upon during really difficult times, to reflect on our moral integrity, to bring up some real strength when, when we're in a challenging time. And then it goes on from there. And then people, creatures, beings, whatever, you know. And again, it's sometimes we're those people. The next level would be the warring God level. And so this is people who have a lot of privilege, a lot of beauty, a lot of intelligence. Right? Like in the Greek mythology, they're titans, if you remember your Greek mythology. But the, the one thing, even though they've got 
a lot going for them. Beautiful, want, you know, have some intelligence, some wisdom. They're jealous of the realms that are even more refined and more beautiful. So they can't even enjoy their very privileged existence. And it's depicted in Buddhist cosmology, you know, the mythologies, the sort of artistic depictions. You know, they have the mountain and the beings, the more angelic, more refined devas. I don't know if you know that word devas, sort of like celestial beings. And there are many realms. You know, I've mentioned the hell realms, the hungry ghost realms, the animal realms, the human realms. That's sort of the lower half. But I don't know, I forget if it's 14 or 16 realms in the deva area, these more angelic or celestial realms. But the lowest level is the, the titans or the warring gods. And it's, it's just uh, really privileged beings that are very envious of those who have even better conditions. So they totally miss the nice situation that they currently have. And they're always trying to get up the mountain higher and always being put back down. And they can't get it out of their mind. You know, yeah, I'm a millionaire, but there are billionaires. <laughs> I watched, uh, I think it was Stephen Colbert a couple weeks or a week ago, and they were, you know, talking about the oligarchs. And, uh, and you know, there was just a story in one of the papers about one of the oligarchs having a $49 million yacht and Stephen Colbert was making fun because there were several in the news in the previous week that were worth over a half a billion dollars, you know. And $49 million, yeah, I mean, that's nothing compared to 500,000, uh, 500,000, no, 500 million dollar yacht. <laughs> and that's how it is. And it's true. I mean, it's even on our level, you know, I'm assuming no oligarchs in the room or on Zoom tonight. But it's, it's true with us too. It's like, we have a Prius, but Sarah has a souped up Prius. <laughs> right? You know, and it's like, oh, souped up Prius. I want a souped up Prius, you know, that you know, can do this, but our, that our, can't, our Prius can't do. And, and on and on like this. Little things, big things. So that's the warring God realm. And then the Deva realms are really, the higher Deva realms are really um, about a, a more amazing refinement. The sensuality is so refined, like the bodies at that level, very refined bodies. Like sex, you don't, you don't have to make contact, you just gaze into each other's eyes, right? <laughs> nectar of the gods, you know, we have some phrases, you know, the, I think in some ways our smoothies are some attempt to get the nectar of the gods. Endless, it's endless, like these refinements. And one of the things about these higher realms is that they last for an unimaginable length of time. And when devas, I mean, these are just the stories, right? But when devas are born, they're immediately, very quickly, almost immediately become sort of in the prime of their youth, like 19-year-olds in human years. And then they stay in that sort of per perfect bloom of young adulthood 
until just moments before they die. And then the aging process comes really quickly and they feel so betrayed because it, the existence in the perfect bloom of health lasted unimaginable lengths of time. So the delusion like, of that extreme privilege, so refined, so beautiful, is that you know, this privilege places mine forever. So it's such a betrayal when it eventually ends. And they could, depending on the seeds, you know, the story as the story goes, you could end up in any place. Like there's one story of the Buddha-to-be, you know, before the Buddha's life that we know as Shakyamuni, who became this great teacher that we're benefiting from right now, before that lifetime, in a previous lifetime, he was in one of the hell realms. Remember, the, the, the characteristic of the mind in the hell realm is, I'll do anything to get out. And it was sort of this classic setting. I don't know, I mentioned this recently in the talk. I don't think it was in the Buddhist studies, was it? So anyway, it's like they're pulling, you know, a bunch of them walking through the fires of hell, something like that, pulling something really heavy with the demon guards whipping them, you know, just sort of as a human being would imagine hell realm to be, right? And then the guy or the person next to the Buddha to be falls and really starts getting beaten and the Buddha helps him. So he, the Buddha took his mind, that what characterizes being in hell is like, I'll do anything to get out of here. But in that moment, the Buddha to be, the Bodhisattva, decided to help. So he could no longer be in hell because you can't have that attitude of compassion. So he immediately got transported to a different place. <laughs> because that's how it is. It, it's the same with us now in this lifetime. We're moving through all these realms all the time. And we can get out of hell in a moment when we just stop willing to sell our soul to get relief. When we stop struggling, doing anything counterproductive to get a little relief. Then we're no longer in hell realm. Maybe we bump up into the hungry ghost realm or maybe go right to the deva realm. Sometimes that happens actually. You know, we get uh, put into a corner, life puts us into a corner, we lose our job, we get cancer, all hell breaks out around us and our family or whatever. And the heart lets go just lets go. And people experience tremendous freedom even though a lot of their life circumstances are really bad, really difficult. But they really let go of needing things to be any particular way. It was just too heavy of a load. And the heart can let go of a lot. I mean, I'm not saying it always happens that way when we get pushed into a corner, but it does happen sometimes. But anyway, I wanted to just mention that cosmology because it, it, it gives us a sort of breath, a way to normalize all the different ways we relate to sensuality. And, you can, and it allows us to name it all. Oh, I'm in a deva realm. I'm imagining this good run I'm having right now where people like me and I have good health and I live in a place where there's some justice. I'm imagining this, it's always going to be this way, you know? And we're not seeing the big picture, which 
anything can happen anytime is sort of the big picture, right? And it will happen. Everything will happen eventually. It's just a matter of time. And it kind of ruins the Deva realm when we know it's not going to last forever. What makes the Deva realm, the beautiful realms of existence, so nice is we think we finally got where we wanted to be. We're done. I'm there. It's nice. There's an example with uh, Ajahn Chah. I might have mentioned this in one of the early classes, but some lay people were questioning Ajahn Chah, this very famous Thai meditation monk and trainer of some Westerners. You know, he's been quite influential in Buddhism coming here to the West. And um, somebody had one, at one point given him a really nice uh, teacup that was a little unusual for a monk to have. Some of you have been to tea in Thailand. You know, they'll have their monks will have their little bag and they'll have just a few requisites besides their robes, you know, their toothbrush and a few other things and, you know, a little spittoon sometimes and a little cup for things to eat. Um, what's given to them so they can, like, get water from fountains and stuff like that. But Achacha had this really delicate, nice teacup and they were sort of, someone was asking him about that. And he said, oh, it's not a problem. I imagine it's already broken. You know, it's, it's okay for me to have a nice thing because I know, however nice it is, it's not going to last. So try this with your lover <laughs> or your dog or your cat or your good friend. It's like, I can really fully embrace and enjoy your company because I know it won't always be this way. It's like that fourth of the five remembrances. All that is beloved, all that is beautiful, all that is seemingly mine will become otherwise, will be taken away. I can't hold on to anything, ultimately. Now, what happens if we live that way with our cars and our cell phones and our friends and our health and the worldly order for whatever it is, sometimes less, sometimes more, but just the relative harmony of our communities. You know, we get a sense of that when we read about these war zones and how quickly relatively harmonious places can, in, can descend into real hell realms where people are just trying to survive and, and doing really desperate and terrible things. Because that's what makes sense when we're in a really terrible situation. So this is the dance for us. It's like how to have an intimate, pragmatic relationship to sensuality, but see it as already broken. See that it can't really deliver, but just because it can't deliver satisfaction 
doesn't mean we give up on sensuality. And there's an interesting interaction the Buddha had. It's called the stone sliver. And uh, I think this is, uh, yeah, now at this time his foot had been pierced by a stone sliver. Excruciating were the bodily feelings that developed within the Buddha. Painful, fierce, sharp, racking, repellent, disagreeable. But he endured them, mindful, alert, unperturbed. Having had his outer robe folded in four, he laid it out, and on his right side, with one place, one foot placed on the other, which so is lying down. It's a meditative pose. It's one way to... We often use the corpse pose when we're lying down meditation, but traditionally in the Buddhist tradition, you lie on your right side. It's called the lion's pose. And as he was lying there, you know, because he had a really bad foot injury, Mara appears. Now, there's some ideas about what Mara is, but basically, you know, whether it's an actual, you know, trickster, sort of, in some ways, it's like the trickster force in Buddhism, like the coyote sometimes plays in Native American indigenous culture. Um, but sometimes it's just the voice of your own doubt. Sometimes it's an external, but internal, external. Ultimately, they don't really exist in the way we think of that duality of internal and external. Anyway, Mara shows up, this trickster force, and says, oh, you're lying there in a stupor, or are you drunk on poetry? Are your goals so very few, all alone in a secluded lodging? What is this dreamer, this sleepy face? And the Buddha replies to his own doubt or his own sort of, you know, thinking, I'm a slacker. <laughs> what are my students going to think of me lying down like this? And he, re he responds to himself, I lie here, not in a stupor, not drunk on poetry. <laughs> my goal attained, I'm sorrow, sorrow free, all alone in a secluded lodging. I lie down with sympathy for all beings, metta. Even those pierced in the chest with an arrow, their hearts rapidly, rapidly beating, even they with their arrows are able to sleep. So why shouldn't I with my arrow removed? I'm not awake with worry nor afraid to sleep. Days and night do not oppress me. I see no threat of decline in any world at all. That's why I sleep with sympathy for all beings. Then Mara, the evil one, saddened and dejected at realizing the blessed one knows me. The well gone one knows me. He left right there. <laughs> right, the doubt went away. So basically, like, why do I need to be afraid of taking care of myself? It's not about being afraid of eating soup and feeling the direct benefit. And that's kind of the idea is how we like replace the wrong idea that sensuality is here to make us happy or to make us secure and see sensuality here as medicine. Everything is medicine. Sunshine is medicine. Friendship is medicine. Plants are medicine. Food is medicine. Water is medicine, sleep is medicine, 
laughter is medicine, play is medicine. And so a wise being, as we move through our day, everything is medicine. Even difficult experiences medicine, like a, a kind of a learning. Some of you know uh, Carlos Castaneda, but one of the great little themes, I think it was in several of his books, um, from his teacher Don Juan, there's some controversy of whether Don Juan was an actual person or not, but it seems like real wisdom in those books. I read most of them. I found a lot of value and wisdom in those books. And uh, if you don't know much about him, this is back in the early 70s, maybe for about 10 or 15 years, he wrote a number of books. I don't know how many, but at least five, I think, maybe even more. And uh, he evidently studied with an indigenous person from Mexico, uh, Don Juan, and uh, taught him a lot about the nature of the mind and the nature of experience. And a lot of it in, seems to me in alignment with some of the Buddhist teachings. But one of the little subsets of the teaching was about petty tyrants. So even the difficult places in life, those people that push our button, that's sensuality, but they can be medicine. What's the medicine in this relationship? What can I learn here? What's the point? Because even if we somehow are able to get away from that difficult situation, do you notice how it tends to get replicated somewhere I somewhere else later in our life. Same kind of dynamic until we learn the lesson, until that medicine is taken. Oh yeah. It's, I need to learn not to be afraid. I need to learn how to handle power. I need to learn how to yield and let somebody else have power. What's, what's the medicine here? How to take medicine from sensuality. Because what we're really seeing is that real happiness doesn't come from trying to feed, get nutriment from sensuality. It's really, there's sort of two ultimate sources of freedom, of happiness. One is putting down the load. And the load is neurotically trying to get something from sensuality, trying to make sensuality make me happy. Some sense experience. My partner, my dog, my meal, entertainment, a movie. You know, can you imagine if we, if we just spoke what was moving in our heart? Okay, Netflix, okay, this movie. I'm gonna give you an hour and a half of my life and I expect you to make me happy. You know, if we said that to our meals, to our entertainments, even to our walks in the woods, no, it's just gonna be an ingredient. It's gonna be either, if we use it correctly, it will be a little medicine, that will, and if it's really used correctly, the medicine steers the heart to what is real happiness. And in Buddhism, we just talk about real happiness as the happiness of letting go. The letting go of, of unskillful behavior, like that I mentioned the sila. That letting go, like developing the skill to not cause harm, is liberating. 
I can trust my heart not to be a jerk, not to do unskillful things, because I've trained my heart not to steal, not to speak in ways that cause harm, not to use my sexual energy in ways that cause harm. So that's the beginning of letting go, and then we can let go of distraction. That's such a burden. Like, I could think about that, I could obsess about that, but I'm not going to, I don't have to, don't need to, there's no value in it. And so the mind knows how to only pick up the thoughts that need to be thought. Everything else, it's not picking up. It still may happen in the background of the mind because of whatever momentum those tendencies have to worry, to plan. But the mind's not trying to get anything from it. And when thinking is good medicine, because we've got a problem solve something, we use that medicine. And when it's not needed as medicine, it's not useful medicine, the mind doesn't use thinking. And again, it doesn't mean we can stop thinking, it just means the mind isn't using it, it isn't identifying with it, investing in it. And the deepest letting go is letting go of wrong idea, like the wrong idea of a separate self abandoning that. The hard part of that is we have to see these subtle views, these subtle ways of framing experience. This happiness is the happiness the heart actually seeks. Not the happiness of a nice house or the nice relationships. As powerful as that medicine can be, Buddhism does not dismiss the medicine of sensuality. It's like in places in the suttas, I'm going to have to end here, but in places in the suttas, in the discourses, the Buddha is very clear, like if you have wealth, you should really use it. Don't be afraid of it. Keep generating more wealth and put it to good work. It's like a power. It's basically like if you have a lot of health, do something with your youth, your health, your privilege, your wealth. Keep setting good in motion. Don't, don't be afraid of it. Martin Luther King has a great line about that too. This is a rough paraphrase, but he says something like, love without power is kind of anemic, and power without love or wisdom going to be misused. So we want, you know, we want to use whatever power we have, whatever health we have, whatever intelligence, you know, because some people more, some people less, whatever vitality, institutional power, cultural power, being a man, being a white man, in my case, how do we use the privileges that we have to set good emotion and to steer our life toward the deepest happiness, which is the happiness of letting go? The letting go of wrong view or ignorance, the letting go of wrong action, the letting go of distractedness. These are the three parts of the Eightfold Path. So in the small groups tonight, you know, just 
thinking about those two ways, like the misuse of sensu- sensuality, and just share honestly in your small group, like how many times we try to get something from a sense experience only once again to realize I'm not going to get what I really want from that. It's not going to deliver what I really want. And also in small groups to share just the natural gravitation, hopefully, over time, of really valuing the happiness of moral integrity as, a non, as the beginning of a non-sensual happiness. Like it's really the capacity, my heart knows how to restrain itself from doing what isn't helpful. And the happiness of non-distraction, of just having that continuity of presence. And the happiness of wisdom, of abandoning wrong idea, of a separate self, of self-centeredness. Being able to put that down. So you can talk about those three kinds of happiness. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.